Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. And our key scripture in this study we're doing right now, which has to do with how do you live in the difficult times we're living in. And the, the key that, that the Lord began to bring me into is understanding who you are and why you're here. And, and the, 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 we all have different roles, but the primary role we have we'll find here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus, talking to his disciples, <clears throat> said, You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing. It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Then he uses another example. You are the light of the world. A city that's built on a hill cannot be hidden. Or do they hide a lamp and put it under a basket? But no, they put it on a lampstand that it may give light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're keying on verse 13 that Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. We've looked at the fact that salt's purpose is to be different than the food that it's on. It, salt has two main purposes. Today it really only has one. But in the day that Jesus wrote this, it had two purposes. One purpose was it was a preservative to preserve meat because they didn't have refrigeration. But another important purpose was it, is it, 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 it affected the flavor of the food so that it, had, it whetted your appetite so that you wanted more. And the way the salt did that was by be having a different taste than the food itself. And if you've ever, you never eaten somewhere and they put too much salt on it, you can tell there's too much salt. It doesn't take a great deal of discernment because your taste buds scream at you, oh, this is too salty, I, I, you know, I get some of the salt off it, or it's not salty enough and you reach for the salt cellar. But what it's telling you, the only reason you know there's too much salt or too little salt is because the salt tastes differently than the food it's on. And so what Jesus is telling his disciples is as his disciples... Part of who we are is to taste different than the world, to taste different than the environment that we are in and the environment that we are around. And we're, we're talking about this because I'm concerned that the church has been buying into the philosophy of the world that, that we, are to, we are to just blend in because, and, and not understand that not only is it okay to be different, we're called to be different. Because if you don't understand that, in the day in which you and I are in right now, we won't be prepared to stand. We'll cave in because everything around us is wooing us or pressuring us. And, and not only that, but, there, the, but the world has built in you, has built in you a, 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 a spy on behalf of the world. Some of you may understand what the fifth column is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a spy that's built into you that's siding with the world, and it's called your flesh. Your flesh agrees with the world. Your flesh agrees with the ways of the world. Your flesh is indoctrinated with the ways the world thinks, with the, with the philosophies of the world, the, the attitudes of the world, and it's your flesh that the world bombards. Our media system, all, our, all of our uh, 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 entertainment system, almost all of our entertainment programs, all of our advertising is designed to bombard your flesh and whet your appetites for things that they want to sell you that you don't need. <laughs> They've got to convince you to... See, things you know you need, you don't need advertising for. So you need the advertising to tell you you need something you don't know you need, and probably don't, but they want you to want it so you don't care whether you need it. I just want it. Ever have to ever go into a store where you just... i got to have that, and you don't have to have it. You just want to have it. And it's your flesh. And, you know, boys, for us, it's, you know, it's places like Best Buy and tool stores and things like that. Ladies, it's the clothing stores, you know, most likely. But we get in there, we all know what it's like. i got to have that! And that's our flesh lusting after something. Well, there are more subtle things that we go after. And we began to talk about that. Acceptance, approval. And all of those are devices of the world, devices of the enemy, to lower down our resistance so that we have trouble being different from the world. And so if you don't understand that this is what our purpose is, our part of our very purpose is to be different, then you will, not, you will not be strengthened enough to resist it when that temptation comes. So that's what we've been looking at. We talked in the beginning that... So we're talking about the title of this series is Living a Separated Life. And we've defined what separated means. It doesn't mean weird. It doesn't mean you're standing out on a street corner with placards and signs saying the world's coming to an end in a robe and a long beard, you know, looking different and looking weird because it's hard to reach people when that's what you're doing. It also does not mean isolated. 
that we go sit on a mountaintop and wait for Jesus to come back because he said, occupy until I come. We have a job to do, a work to do. We just saw, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. That's not, that, when you stand, when you hide away, when you, when you hide your gifts away, when you hide what you know away, when you hide your testimony away, then you're not being salt. You're keeping the salt in the salt cellar. Cellar, is that what it is? You're keeping it in the container. <laughs> All right. So that's what we looked at. And then we began to look at obstacles. What are the things that hold us back? What, are the, what, are, what, are the, what does the world use? What does Satan use to, to, to woo us or pull us into being and looking like the world? And the first thing we looked at is the love of the world. And we saw that in 1 John, he talks about that we're not to love the world nor the things of the world. doesn't mean you can't enjoy them, but there's a difference between enjoying something and loving it. And loving is I have to have it. Loving is the, the issue, and most of the issue of all of this is what do you give your heart over to? And we saw that when we're in love with the things of the world, when we have to have the things of the world for our security and for our safety, the real issue is we've given our heart over to it. And Jesus teaches us early, a little later in the next chapter, he says, you can't serve two masters. And so, because you serve your master with your heart. That's why the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. It's with your heart. And you're either loving this world with your heart or you're loving God with your heart, but you can't love both of them. We talked about that. We went through all that. Then we began to look several weeks ago at a second obstacle, and they're all kind of related. And we looked, at, we looked at Proverbs 29, 25, which says that the fear of man is a snare, brings a snare. And so the second obstacle that keeps us from, uh, that keeps us from living, diff, being willing to be different. And what we're talking about, again, is, you know, living a moral lifestyle. I mean, it, it, you know, it's not popular among teenagers to, 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 be, known as a, to, to be known as chaste or a virgin. But in God's eyes, it's absolutely required. So the world's value system and the value system of our peers and of our, of the, it's not just teenagers anymore, it's now in the world, it's just, you know, living together out of, out of wedlock, out of the covenant of marriage, is just accepted and if you, if you stand up for the things of God, then what happens is then you get pressured to, conv- to, to, to cave in. And there are other standards, which we'll talk about further down the road, that we stand up for them and you get persecuted for it. But Jesus says, rejoice when you're persecuted. Rejoice when you're persecuted. Because first of all, when you're persecuted, it means you're doing something right. But see, we've come from an era where the church has not been persecuted, we've been popular. And the problem when the church is popular is we lose our power. A lot of peas there, aren't there? <laughs> when we're popular, we lose our power because we're willing to trade the power for the, for the popularity, to, for the acceptance. And so we've talked about that. We talked about uh, 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 Jesus uh, in John chapter 12. It says that he had many men that wanted to follow him, but they were not willing to stand up and publicly in the synagogue acknowledge they were his disciples because they were afraid that they were going to be kicked out of that. And so we're going to look tonight, and I shared the last time we talked about this, last week we had uh, uh, an evening of sharing testimonies, but I shared with you just very, very openly from my own life the struggle I've had because uh, there's, a, on the one hand, we say, you know, well, we have to, we have to resist the, the, willing, the, the desire to be, to be uh, uh, accepted. We have to resist the desire. We have to be willing to be different. We have to be willing to stand up. But what, when we do that, we deny very often the human part of us that, that was made to need acceptance, that was made to need approval. And the problem is if you just stand in a pulpit and say, you've got to be willing to be different, but you don't help people with the emotional part of it, the soul part of it, then what you've done is you set a standard out there that, that in most cases we're not going to be able to meet. So we have to be a God. See, God doesn't do that. God deals with the inner man, the struggle in your soul to help you come to that place. But the beginning of it is understand what God expects of us, what we're called to do. We're called to be different. We're called to stand up for what this word says and be like Christ and not be like the world. And you can't do both. And so we talked about last time is the, at the root of the fear of man is the need for man's acceptance. The need to be accepted, to be approved, to know you we have value. Three basic needs. And we went back and traced the fact that God's plan for the family, 
the way God planned the family, is that a child would get that from an early age from their mother and father in their, fa- in their family. So that as they grow up to be teenagers and they grow up to begin to learn to be young adults, they were secure enough in who they were that they didn't need the approval of everybody else to tell them who they were. See, when we need the approval of other people, we're letting them define who we are. We're letting them tell you who we are. We're basically putting our lives, we're basically putting who we are in somebody else's hand to determine, and that's not God's. But, but because we're human, because we have that basic human need, unless that need is filled or begins to, begins to get filled, then it's very hard to stand for, for a long time against this. So we talked about last week, well, how do you get that need? First of all, it starts out by identifying the need. And if you're human, you have that need. There's some people, this is what I was like, because what I tried to do is I tried to handle the fact that I had that need by being tough. And just, and men are like that. We can just, you know, we can just get focused and tune everything else out, including our own emotions and our own needs, so we don't feel anything. We just suck it up and go through. Isn't that right, ladies? Isn't that what we tend to do? And then the, our, our wives get upset at us because th- we, there's no intimacy in that. And so they try to get in and help meet that need, and the more they try to do that, the more threatened we are, the more we get focused and tune everybody out. But the problem is when we do that, we tune God out. And we tune God's Spirit out who wants to make us whole. Spirit, soul, and body. Isaiah 53 describes the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. It says that He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. So he bore our sins to make our spirit man whole, our nature whole. He bore the, 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 the agony, the shame, he bore the, the humiliation, he bore the, the loneliness, he bore all of that to give our soul peace and wholeness. And with his stripes he bore sickness and disease so we could have healing for our body. Because God is a God that deals with the whole person, not left part of out till we get to heaven. I've gone back and looked in the Hebrew. The Hebrew doesn't know how to divide things up. The Greek language does. It can divide concepts up. But the Hebrew language doesn't do that. And I was, when I practiced law, I was worked many times with, with Jewish partners, and, and, and several of them were very devout Jews, and so I'd have some interesting discussions with them. And I'd ask them some questions. I said, well, talk to me about the word shalom, or the, which is the word peace, or the word rafa, which means healing. And, I, you know, does that just mean physical healing? And they looked at me, or does that just mean spiritual healing? And they looked at me and said, no, it means whole. Whole means whole. If you go out tonight and you have three filled tires and one flat tire, your car's not well. See, three out of four is not good enough. Two, of you out, two parts of you out of three is not good enough. So if your body's sick, you're not whole. If you're in torment in your soul, and you have physical health, and you're spiritually well, but your soul's in torment, you're not whole. This is not hard. This is, whole means whole. You can't be whole in one part and not another and be whole, because you're not wholly whole. <laughs> And so, so he wants us to be whole. And one of the reasons is so we can be secure and we can stand against the things of the world. So that we talked about last time, the answer to that is not to get it from the world. The answer to that is not to get it from your friends. The answer to that is to get it from your relationship with God. And it's a process, but it's got to begin with that. Only He can fill that hole inside of you. Only He can fill that need to give you value and acceptance and security and meaning. He, only you, you can only get that from the one that made you. And if you begin to seek it from Him, you'll find it. What I want to look at tonight is I want to look at some examples of some men in the Bible that didn't do this and the effects that it caused, and why. So go with me to Exodus chapter 32. We're talking about the fear of man, and why it's a snare. Not just for you. 
Exodus 32, of course, is a story of when God's called, we've talked about this on, on Sunday mornings, when God called Moses up on the mountain. And he's on the mountain communing with their leader, with the one God had called to be their leader. And Moses, God is giving him the Ten Commandments. And Moses left in charge the next one, his brother Aaron. He left him in charge to lead the people. And Moses is up there 40 days and 40 nights, and it says earlier in this chapter that they got anxious because they couldn't see their leader. Now, that's a significant statement. I don't want to really get off into tonight. But that means that they were a people that were walking by sight and not by faith. They had to see their security in order to feel secure. And so when you walk by sight, you're going to make mistakes. So they turned to the one they could see, who was Aaron. Aaron, Moses, his brother, who was called to be the high priest, to represent God before the people. And up in, uh, in verse 6, we're not going to go there and read it, but the, um, well, let's go back and look in uh, verse... Uh, well, let's go to verse 1. When the people saw Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, they gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, this is the people now coming to the leader. This is the people coming to the leader that has been delegated by God to lead them. The people coming, telling the leader what they need. They said, Come, Make gods that we may, that they shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron says to them, notice he break off golden earrings. He starts organizing how to do this. So all the people broke off the golden earrings. You know what happens. They built this golden calf. Look at verse 4. It says, They received the gold from the hand, which, by the way, we're going to, we've learning on Sunday morning, was given them to build the tabernacle so the true God could come down in their midst. So they're taking riches that God gave them to use to worship Him, and they're using them to worship something they've made. That would be another whole series. We could go on that. And look what he says. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before the calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. So he's trying to worship the Lord, but instead of worshiping the living God, who's up on the mountain talking to Moses, he's made his own God to represent the Lord God. It's idolatry. So they got up the next day, and it says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is an idiom in Hebrew that basically means they had a wild party. <laughs> they were unrestrained. They were, they were having all kinds of... This was a party where things were going on that shouldn't be going on. Okay. So God tells Moses that he needs to go down and take care of this. Verse 9, The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, they are stiff-necked. Therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and make of you a great nation. Moses pleaded with God not to do that, and God... God God changed his mind. Verse 13, he remembered Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the servants whom you... Oh, he said, remember them. And verse 14 says, the Lord relented from the harm which he said. So now Moses turns and he goes down and he sees this wild orgy going on in the camp. And so where does Moses go? Verse 21, the first thing Moses goes to is the one he left in charge. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought this great sin upon them. Notice who's responsible for bringing the sin. Aaron is. And notice he says, what did they do to you? What did they do to you that you brought this sin on them? And Aaron said, don't let the anger of my Lord become hot, for you know this people. This sounds a little bit like the garden, doesn't it? When God comes down to the man he left in charge and says, have you done what I told you not to do? And what does he say? Well, you know this woman. <laughs> it's the woman you gave me. And so that's what he's doing here. That's excuse still works. To, it doesn't work. That excuse is still used today. 
You know this people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that, we shall, that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Now he's acting like he's just an innocent third party here. I, I don't know, they came to me. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, I cast it in the fire. This calf comes out. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know how that window got broken. <laughs> Sounds like a child, doesn't it? I don't know. Look at verse 25. When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among the enemies. I want you to see what's at stake in how Aaron handled this. It isn't just Aaron and his relationship with his brother. It isn't even just Aaron and his relationship with God. Aaron's, what we're going to see Aaron did here, has affected an entire nation. In fact, if Moses hadn't stood up for them, they would have been wiped out because of what Aaron allowed to happen. When, Aaron, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained. Now, there's a passage in the Bible that says that my people perish for a lack of knowledge. Without vision, the people perish. Excuse me, that's the one. The word vision is actually restraint. They don't perish, they're unrestrained. So without vision, the people are unrestrained. They'll go anywhere. But where does vision come from? Vision comes from the visionary, which is God. Now look at the next verse. Then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Notice the issue was who was going to obey God. That was the issue to Moses. We're going to see that was not the issue to Aaron. Aaron's issue was not how does this affect God. Aaron's issue was concern was not is, is what does God want. Aaron's concern was what do they think of me. The fear of man is a snare. And he said to them, let, Thus says the Lord God, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from among the entrance of the camp throughout the camp. So Moses comes down, first of all, gets his report from his man, leaves him alone, and now Moses does for the people what Aaron should have done in the beginning, because if Aaron had done this, it never would have come to this. And Moses draws a line, and Moses has to destroy people. He destroys the calf, he makes them drink it. Puts the, 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 the dust on water, makes them drink it. And then he turns back to Aaron, to deal with Aaron. And we'll pick up, pick up here... Um, Where is it here? No. Okay. But here, go back. Go, all right, go back now to... Uh, All right, well, I'm going to move on. The root here, here's the problem. Aaron is more concerned with what the people think of him than what Moses thinks or what God thinks. And because of that, under pressure, he gives in to what the people want. And the result is instead of the people being blessed, they're destroyed. See, God has an order for things. And we, when we put things in God's order, there's protection and there's provision. When we get things out of God's order, there's disruption and we're exposed people. See, when you're in leadership, the responsibility you have has to do with God's ability to protect people. This is why it says in James 3.1, don't desire to be a teacher. Don't desire to be in ministry. Don't desire something unless God puts you there. 
because there's a greater judgment, a greater responsibility, because not only the choices you make, but the way you handle things affects the security and well-being of people that God's put under you. So there's a tremendous responsibility that we have. That's not just true of pastors, it's true of fathers and mothers. It's true in any area of responsibility, even if you're in a delegated area of responsibility, which ultimately we all are. All right, let's go look at another example. Let's go over to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is the one I was looking for the scripture in. We fast forward a few hundred years. The people have gone into, David has conquered the, Israel has conquered the palace, Joshua has conquered uh, um, the promised land, settled it. The people asked for a king. God's given them uh, Saul as the king. And Samuel has anointed him. Saul's instructions here. Saul's instructions here is, let's see. Let's pick up here. Well, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people of Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Notice what he says. Listen to what the Lord's telling you. This has become very important for what we're talking about. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came out of Egypt. That's the nation of Israel. Go now and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. It's very important to listen to this. But kill both the men and the women, the infant, the nursing child, the ox, the sheep, the camel, and the donkey. Now, when I first got saved, those kind of things really disturbed me. How does the God that's a loving God, how does the God whose mercies are new every morning, how does that God say to do this? And I kind of came to the conclusion it must be a God's father, <laughs> the Godfather. It must be God's. It must be an older version of God, and he kind of mellowed out when we got to the New Testament. I mean, it's amazing the things thoughts we had until I read the Old Testament with some help and instructions from a course on a survey, which is why we have a survey course in the New Testament in the in the uh, in these things in the School of Ministry. What I began to understand is, first of all, and I don't want to get off into this too much, but the God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. But we are in an age of grace, which is like a parenthesis. You know what a parenthesis is? You go in this sentence, and in order to explain something, they put these parentheses around, so there's a phrase or a sentence or something in the middle that's kind of like you take a deep breath and you say this, and then you get back to the, what the rest of what the sentence is saying. And the age of grace we're in is where God, because of the cross, has, has taken the things of the judgments of the Old Testament and the judgments that are going to come, and He's kind of held them off through the cross for the church at this age. And he, Peter talks about this. You know, this is why, you know, don't get impatient because God's grace is there because He wants to save everybody He can save. That's the parenthesis, holding it back. Kind of like the walls of the, of the, of the Red Sea were held back while God's people came across. But boy, once they were across, they came together and swallowed up those that were unrighteous. And so the, we're, in, we're in this parenthesis. But the other thing that helped me is to understand, first of all, all, here's one key to always understanding the Bible, God's always right. So if something you don't understand, you need to ask Him to show you why He's right and why you don't understand it. And God's consistent. His character is consistent. When I began to look at it that way, I began to understand something. It's amazing when you ask God why, He'll, he'll show you. And, and it began to show me this, and I've told this story before. Um, and I, want, I don't want again, to take too long because I want to finish this section today. But, but my mother told me this story growing up, that she grew up in a small town in Maine. And, uh, uh, and she's a large house. She was one of four children. And um, her father, my grandfather, well, let's put it this way. I mean, they weren't saved. He, he, he enjoyed a good time at night with his friends. 
uh, and he was one of those nights he was out having a good time. Uh, and he came in filled with the Spirit. It just wasn't a holy one. And when he walked up on the back porch, there was this cute cat waiting for him. Except this cat had two white stripes down its back and up its tail. And the cat, which obviously wasn't a cat, and my grandfather were equally startled at the presence of the other. Except the skunk had a different way of expressing it. <laughs> and my grandfather, full of the spirit, was also very bold in how he approached the skunk. And the skunk won. The skunk turned around and let him have it full force right in his chest. It was so strong it woke my mother up sleeping in the second story in the front of this big house. It also woke my grandmother up. And she came down to that door and she said, Horace, you can come in, but the clothes can't. And she brought him in. I think she bathed him in tomato juice or something like that that got rid of that, that, that neutralized it. And then she went out the next morning with a fork, with a, with a, with a shovel, dug a hole, took his clothes, put him in the hole, and covered the hole up and pounded it down. Now, that's kind of a drastic way to clean them. But my grandmother understood something about the skunk's defilement of the clothes. The fibers of that clo those clothes were so permeated with the smell of that skunk that there was no way washing them was going to get it out. Not only that, if she tried to wash the clothes, the odor of the skunk not only was not going to come out of my grandfather's clothes, it was going to affect the other clothes she washed it with or the washing machine she washed them in. So the, the, the clothes smell, the, 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 the effect on those clothes was so permanent that there was no way to get it, there was no way to redeem those clothes. And on the other hand, getting those clothes, keeping those clothes, risked exposing other clothes and other things in the house to the same result. That's where the Amalekites were. The Amalekites were so steeped in sin, and only God can judge this. Only God can judge. This is what the judgment when God flooded the earth. It came to a point where it got so bad it was down to only one family. And God says, what happens is if I don't do something now, that family is going to get affected and now there'll be no righteous line that I can bring my, my son's birth through. So for your sake and my sake, he had to destroy the world before that one last family became affected. So God ultimately did that as an act of mercy for you and me and those that would accept Christ down the road. And that's what's going on here. So it's not that God just gets ticked off one day and says, I'm going to wipe out children. It was already in their children. And there was no chance by God's judgment, which is always right, of redeeming it. Okay. And that's God's call, right? Okay, let's go on. Saul gets, so he said, utterly destroy them. Everything, the animals and everything. So Saul gathered the people of Gear, numbered them until um, 200,000 200, on foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And he came down to the city of Amalek and he, he said, go and depart from there. And he utterly destroyed them. We go down to, he attacked verse 7, he attacked the Amalekites. And then verse 8 says, he also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly, destroy, utterly destroyed the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs. Notice he spared the best of them. And all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, those he utterly destroyed. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, who's somewhere else, and saying, I regret that I've set up Saul as king. For he's turned back from following me. He's not performed my commandments. It grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And when, so Samuel intercedes for Saul all night. When, so when Samuel rose early in the morning he met, to meet Saul, he told Saul, saying, uh, Saul went to Carmel, 
to meet Saul. It was told Samuel by the Lord. Saul went to Carmel, not the mountain, but the town. And indeed he set a monument for himself and has gone all around it and gone down to Gilgal. Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you. So Samuel arrives now at the camp of the king. The king greets him, the prophet, and says, Blessed are you, Samuel. Blessed are you, Samuel, of the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, and Then what then is the bleeding of these sheep? What's this? Ah, I hear. What's the noise of these sheep I hear? Now watch this. Watch the excuses begin. And the lowing of the oxen that I hear. Look at what comes out of Saul's mouth. And Saul says, Oh, they, the people, who's king? Saul. Who've been commanded to be responsible for this task? Saul. Who is Saul saying did it? They, the people. They have brought them from the Amalekites and the people, the people, I had nothing to do with this. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, look at this, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So we, we you know, we, we, we didn't do, they didn't do exactly what God said, but they had a better idea than God. They had a better idea. They took the best because they want to use these to form a, for a special church service where we can have a special worship service and we can offer these better ones up to God. And the rest we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet! And I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Here's an operation of one of the gifts of the Spirit, the gift of the, of the Word of Wisdom, something he's known ahead of time. So God was telling Saul, Samuel, the night before what had happened in his prayer closet, just as God told Moses in his prayer closet on the top of the mountain what was happening. And he says, speak on. I'm sure his voice was beginning to tremble. So Samuel said, where... When you were little in your own eyes, or humble, were you not the head of the tribe of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you as king over Israel? In other words, God's the one that puts you here. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said to you, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? This is the issue. This is the issue. He didn't obey the commandment of God. And Saul said to Samuel, but I have... He's arguing with God because God's the one that told Samuel he disobeyed me. So I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and I brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things that should be utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgad. Just saying the same thing over again. Look at what Samuel says, because this verse is often quoted for the wrong purpose. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And people usually quote that for God, God would rather, God prefers obedience over our sacrifice, thinking, you know, our sacrifice of what we're giving up and of over what we're paying, the price we're paying. No, the sacrifice here is the, is the good thing that Saul decided to do that was not what God told him to do. In other words, God is much more pleased with obedience than us doing our own thing that's good. Than us exercising our own independent judgment for doing good things when God's told us what to do. That's what he's talking about here. To obey is better than sacrifice. The sacrifice he's talking about is what you think ought to be done. For rebellion, which is what God calls it, is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He's also rejected you from king. Now watch this. Here's where what's going on in Saul's thinking and in Saul's character comes out. Then Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. This is his next line of defense. The first is he said, look, we didn't do anything wrong. I basically did what God said to do, and what we did differently, the people did. That's not working now. And now he's been told, 
God's taking your throne away from you and going to give it to another. So now what he comes up with is he says, all right, I've sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because, look at this, I feared the people and obeyed their voice as if that's a good excuse. But that is the truth. He feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel says to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and given it to your, a neighbor of yours, who will be King David, who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel, that's God, will not lie nor relent. He's not a man that he should relent. Then Saul says, I have sinned. Now look at this. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He's still concerned about what the people think. He now realizes he's caught. He now realizes he's not going to get away with it. So now he's trying to negotiate how to minimize the damage to his reputation. He's not concerned with obeying God. He's not concerned with doing what God said. He's concerned more with, and he said, right, he fears the people. We're looking at what keeps us from standing strong. One of the obstacles that keeps us from being willing to be different is, is a fear of what people think of us. And what we're seeing from the scriptures is there's a big cost to that at some point. It's a snare, but not just for our walk, it's a snare for people that God's put under us. And I'm talking to me as everybody else. Honor me yet, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return me, me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord on his own. And Saul, Samuel brought, said, bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, out. So Agag came to him cautiously. <laughs> and Agag says, surely the bitterness of death is past. And those, Whew, I've made it. And Samuel said, as your sword made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went on to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house of Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. What a very powerful story about the fear of man. Sobering. And where we have that weakness in us, this is why we have to deal with it. And God's patient because God knows that we have to work at it from the inside. But we have to face it and be honest and work at it and allow Him to work in us. Because we see here, ultimately, there's a great price that can be paid. Because the root of it is, He cared more for what the people thought of Him than God. Now, in this story is also the answer for how you overcome. Because the answer for overcoming is exactly what God told Him to do, which was to obey exactly what He said. The way you overcome intimidation is by submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Say, so, well, he's my Lord, that's how I got saved. No, I mean your will. So that what he says to you, his commandment has a higher authority in your life than other people's commandments and other people's pressure. Because it's the fear of the Lord that gives you victory over the fear of man. It's the fear of the Lord that gives you victory over the fear of man. We'll end with one more story on this. We'll go to Numbers 13 quickly. This is going back in time. This is the children of Israel that have come out through out of Egypt. God supernaturally brought them out of Egypt. They've come for about a year traveling through the, the Sinai Desert. And now God has brought them up to the edge of the promised land, the place where he is destined for them to be for his purposes and for their blessing. They send 12 spies in. And the 12 spies come back in Numbers 13 and give their report. 
And here's their report. Verse 26. They departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregations and showed them the fruit of the land. They had evidence to show them that what God said about the land was correct. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The, the grapes were so large that one cluster had to be carried on a pole between two men. We went into the land, verse 27, where you told us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. But look at verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, look at this, we saw. Our eyes saw something. Our physical senses saw something, detected something. We saw the descendants of Anak there. Those were a a giant race, a race of very large men. We saw giants there. And the Amalekites, that's another earlier version of the same people, dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the land by the sea along by the bank to the Jordan. So they're saying, yes, everything, listen to me carefully, everything God commanded is true. Nevertheless, we saw something else. So they're weighing what God's words told them and what they saw, and there's an inconsistency there, and they're moved more by what they saw than what God's words said to do. And it creates panic among the camp. Caleb, verse 20 quieted the people before Moses and said us, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. So he's agreeing God commanded them to go in there and Caleb, we're going to see in a minute, had a different spirit in him. Caleb's view was I'm submitted to what God says to do, therefore whatever God says to do, I can do because God said do it. And because, that, because, see, when you're under God's authority, you're under His protection. And nobody can get at you when you're obeying Him. When you're carrying out His will, when you're carrying out His instructions, when you're carrying out His Word, His Word, His nature, His character protects you. It's like being, it's like the, the geese, you know, in, in, the, in the flock of geese that are flying south. You know, they fly in a V. Because the one in front is the one that's breaking the force of the air around them. So he's cutting the way through so that the rest of them have an easier ride. When we're behind God, when we're in line with His will and His word, we're right up there behind Him. We're like the, 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 the NASCAR that's, in the, that's drafting behind the lead car. We're right behind there and He's separating. He's putting the pressure out of the way. He's taking the brunt of all of it. But when you step out on your own to do what you think, then you're hitting the brunt of it. And that's what Caleb's saying. Over in chapter 14, it says that the congregation cried all night. Then they got mad at Moses. And then they got mad at God. Down in verse 8. Well, verse 6. But Joshua, the other spy that was in faith, who spied out the land. He spoke to the congregation in verse 7. And said, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into the land to give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people. Notice that choice. Notice that choice. So the way we overcome the fear of people is to having a greater fear of the Lord reverence for Him, respect for His authority in my life. So much comes down to that. Faith and authority go hand in hand. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5, is the story of this centurion, a, 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 a Gentile Roman officer, comes to Jesus and said, my servant is suffering at home. We're going to have to end here. Suffering at home. He was going to, and Jesus said, I'll come to heal him. And the centurion says, no, 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 I'm not worthy for you to come. You don't need to come. And then he tells him why. Because I see something in you that I recognize in me. He said, like you, 
I am under authority, and then he says, I am in authority. I recognize it in you because I'm on somebody under authority, and I am someone in authority. And he says, because that, I recognize all you've got to do is say the word. In other words, he said, I recognize that what authority means is you do exactly what your father says, and therefore, your father does exactly what you say. Because my soldiers, when I say go, they go. When I say come, they come. When I tell my servant to do something, he does it. Jesus stops everybody that's traveling with him and says, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus says, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Jesus called what that man was seeing great faith. What was great faith? Because he understood the authority of the words that came out of Jesus' mouth. Why? Because he'd lived a life under authority. And we've got a church that's trying to live in authority without being willing to be under authority. And when we're under the authority, nobody can hurt us. Nobody can touch us. And we'll pick up next week and show you why. And it will answer what you need to know. Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your, your, the, the mercy, Lord, that's new every morning as we grow as your children in our trust in you and in our faith. And learn, Lord, not to rely on the approval and the fear of man. Help us to take the things that we've heard tonight, Father, and with the Holy Spirit working in our lives to begin to work these truths into our lives in the daily decisions that we have to make. We thank you, Father. It's not because of our wisdom. It's not because of our strength. but It's because of your Spirit at work in us, both to will and to do your good pleasure, that we have confidence, Lord, that we can come through and learn to stand strong for you and to be the salt in this earth that you have that you have placed here so that you may do what you want to do and your will may be done and your kingdom may come. In Jesus' name, amen.